Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics. There was to be a separate interpretation based on the confines of that that act. The head of CSIS is asked to clarify seemingly conflicted assessments. Did the spy agency believe it was necessary to invoke the Emergencies Act or not? We'll examine today's testimony at the Rouleau Inquiry. Also... Getting ready for the busy travel season, what the transport minister is hoping to achieve with a travel summit later this week. And... This is about sharing. This is a real partnership. Not one, but two leaders for the federal Greens. Just how will that work? This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. The last week of testimony at the Emergencies Act inquiry has begun. Top ministers, including the Prime Minister, are scheduled to appear this week. And today, it was the Emergency Preparedness Minister who answered questions for Justice Rouleau, as did the head of the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, who, by the way, said the act was needed to deal with the convoy protest, which contradicts an earlier impression many had of the spy agency's assessment. Take a listen. You understand that the purpose of one of the purposes of this commission is to assess whether uh, the act was properly invoked. Um, Sorry, can you just answer audibly? Yes. Thank you. Um, And I guess I'm wondering why you didn't think it was relevant when you met with commission counsel in August to note that you had, in fact, advised the prime minister that you believed the act should be invoked. I think there the um, probably two reasons I would say one is that uh, very simply, the question was not asked, and so just you know, when you go through the the dynamic you know process of the uh, of the interview, so it did not uh, was not specifically asked, but there was also at that point you know a lack of clarity in my head about what was still a cabinet confidence and what would be a, what I was able to to say as a part as a participant in cabinet meetings. So to go through today's testimony, we're now reaching out to Joanna Smith, Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Canadian Press, and Chris Nardi, who's been covering the inquiry for the National Post. Good to see both of you. Hi, Michael. So Joanna, as we heard... Hi, there. So as we heard, the CSIS director did not share the full story when he spoke to the commission earlier this summer. How significant is this added assessment that ultimately the Prime Minister was advised to invoke the Emergencies Act? I think it's pretty significant in that it supports the Liberal government's case that invoking the act in their view was necessary. They can say, look, it wasn't us. It was CSIS. They know what they're talking about, right? They they advise us to do this. But I think the key question is, did they? Did they did they know what they were talking about? And you know, Vigneault said the unpredictability of the situation convinced him the usual tools were not enough. But this was the case, even though CSIS had already, you know, been of the opinion of the protest did not meet the strict CSIS definition of a threat to national security, which is something we heard about last week in testimony from National Security Advisor Jody Thomas. You know, the Emergencies Act really identifies a public order emergency as a threat to national security as defined by the CSIS Act. And that definition includes espionage or sabotage of Canada's interests, foreign influence, 
acts of serious violence, it goes on. So Vigneault said, you know, there was no such threat. They were investigating some participants in relation to violent extremism and their potential to exploit people from the anti-vaccine, anti-COVID restrictions movement to violent extremism. But, but you know, this, this, this definition didn't change. So the fact that he actually is saying that he advised the prime minister personally in that key meeting before the Emergencies Act invoked does give the Liberal government something to point to, to say this wasn't just something we decided on our own. Yeah, give some, the government something to point to. And we're going to build on that. And I'm also going to build up on the definition. But before we get there, Chris, uh, let's get you in on the conversation. What do you make of the director's reasoning? Because up until now, critics of the invocation have been pointing to that earlier CSIS assessment that the protest did not present a threat to security. Well, it's certainly new information, and it's certainly information that the government must have just sighed a breath of relief that finally, like they knew, of course, that he had recommended it, but it wasn't public knowledge, right? And it's kind of changed the discourse over how serious the support that the liberal government had, like the, the legal support had uh, when they invoked the act. Now they can turn and say, well, CSIS, the National Security Agency, one of the main ones in Canada, told us that we have this kind of broader threat to national security, even though, again, as, as Joe Joanna said, it wasn't one as defined by the CSIS Act itself. Uh, so big sigh of relief for them, but you know, there's also kind of an aspect, like a circular aspect here, where Vigneault talked about basing his assessment that yes, you should invoke it on a legal judgment, a legal, sorry, interpretation that he received from the Department of Justice. We've heard a little bit about this, this famous legal interpretation, but we have not seen it. Um, and that was provided by the DOJ saying, well, it's okay to interpret what a threat to Canada's national security is broader than the actual definition that we have in the law. And, you know, I think we'll talk about this a lot more, but it, it's kind of becoming a circular argument where he says, well, in this broader definition that the government gave me, then yes, you can invoke it for sure, but I haven't found the threat in the very specific definition that is in the law. Yeah, okay, and let's get into it deeper now, because that really, it really plays such an important part of what we're hearing, not only from Vigneault, but also what we heard uh, earlier last week from the, the National Security Advisor, because uh, part of his reasoning, as you both have said, is the definition of what constitutes a threat, because both he and the, the National Security Advisor uh, believe that the definition as it stands is too narrow. So, Joanna, walk us through that the, the argument that they're making here, because it's, it, it almost seems like it's not the letter of the law that they're looking at, but more what they interpret the spirit of the law should be. Yes, and this is something the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, for example, is calling a, a novel interpretation. And I remember I said this last week, but Ian Brody, former chief of staff to former Prime Minister Stephen Harper, also tweeted, you know, what a novel doctrine, sort of interpreting legislation on base what you'd like to see in it, not what's actually in it now. So that, that sort of remains a key issue. But I, I think, as Chris mentioned, you know, a lot of it really rests on Vigneault talking about this was his, his belief that it could be interpreted in, in a broader way, in a different way, came from this advice he received from the Department of Justice. Now, that advice will not be shared with the public um, because the government has not waived solicitor-client privilege when it comes to the invocation of the act. So we're really sort of stuck right now on this key question and not being able to have all the input I think the public needs to really interpret whether that was a sound choice. But that's sort of, as you mentioned, a, a circular argument right now where it's a little hard to tell 
who came up with which interpretation first. It's if if Vigneault is saying that he gave the advice to the prime minister based on something he got from the prime minister's own government, then we're still not really figuring out where this all started. Mm -hmm. and, and Chris, I'll get you to build on that because the, the, the ultimate question here, does that kind of argument fly? Because on the one hand, you have this live and fluid situation, but on the other hand, advice is being given based on what they think a definition should be rather than what it actually is. See, Michael, this is the perfect case for an actual court to hear, right? A court that has time to look at this, to hear the legal arguments on both sides, and ultimately, you know, conclude what, how the law should be interpreted. Unfortunately, we're not in front of an actual court, right? We're in front of an inquiry, a commission. And Commissioner Paul Rulo, who I'm sure has the capacity to actually interpret these legal arguments, does not have either the mandate nor the time to do that. So we may get in his review that we, it, where we expect to come out in around February, we may get kind of a broad strokes review of his saying, well, I kind of ascribe to this or I don't. We don't even know, in fact, if he's seen that document. He probably hasn't, because as Joanna mentioned, it's covered by solicitor-client uh, privilege. Um, so you know, if he can't even make a determination of how good that interpretation is by the Department of Justice of how they view the law should be invoked, we're completely in the dark here. And so I really do not envy his mandate, which is to say, okay, well, the Department of Justice and the government gave all, and, and, and uh, crucial members of government, including the head of CSIS, gave all these recommendations about the Emergencies Act based on advice that no one's going to see. Uh, and I can't even tell you if it has any legal strong you know, basis, because legal interpretations are just that. They're interpretations. They can be very good. They can be terrible. There have been some terrible ones. I can't speak to any of them. So unfortunately, it is a crucial piece of the puzzle that we're not going to see likely. Uh, and if we don't, well, it leaves the commissioner to make kind of uh, his recommendations and his assessment of the use of the EA on incomplete information. Mm -hmm. uh, listen, let's, let's quickly switch over right now to the Emergency Preparedness Minister, Bill Blair, because as we talk about Vigneault, of course, we're going to have to see how that fits into the final report. But Bill Blair is the first cabinet minister to also appear before the commission. He did so today. Let's take a bit of a listen to the minister. And we define critical infrastructure as 10 different sectors, sectors of critical infrastructure. And in particular, as it relates to this event, it includes such things as manufacturing, our transportation routes, the essential supply lines, the movement of essential workers. And, and I, what I was witnessing at the Ambassador Bridge, at Coots, at Emerson, and then in, in a number of different um, venues that I would, where, where we, we would see similar activity being threatened to be done at Point Edwards, at the Peace Bridge, um, at the Pacific Highway um, in, in British Columbia, that that, that, that escalation, and I, I viewed as a significant escalation because it did result in, in significant disruption of, of critical supply lines, the cutting off of essential goods and services, um, the impact that it was having, not just economically, but on people, on families, and you know, people were being laid off their jobs, um, and, and factories were being idled. So the minister essentially saying that he became very concerned about the economic impact. That's what elevated it for him into a national emergency. Uh, Joanna, Chris, I'm going to each get you take a turn on this. What did you make of the minister's testimony today? Where does it fit into the picture that Rouleau is trying to paint here? 
I think it paints into this idea of whether the government thought it was necessary and whether other tools were exhausted. I did find it interesting that Blair concentrated so heavily on his beliefs about the the damage that the border blockades were doing. I mentioned Alberta because we have heard testimony evidence from a Alberta cabinet minister who was frustrated um, in his communications with Blair, um, not getting the kind of help he was seeking. So to see Blair focused on that and sort of downplay the the part that was taking place in Ottawa was pretty interesting in, in terms of I wasn't really expecting to see him display his thinking in quite that way. Mm-hmm. Chris, what, what did you make the minister's testimony? Again, the first government minister to appear before the commission. And it's interesting because what we heard seems to echo what we've heard before, that there was distrust that the police response as it was, was actually adequate enough to meet the challenge. Absolutely. And we're seeing a lot of text messages and emails that he sent over the course of the convoy where he's seemingly particularly critical of the Ottawa Police Service and its chief, Peter Slowly. He talks about Peter Slowly foundering. At one point, he's, you know, someone reports to him by text, uh, well, you know, the chief seems exhausted. And he responds, well, he should get some sleep then, right? This kind of very profound dissatisfaction that, to be fair, he's actually quite backtracked here when asked about it in testimony. He's like, oh, no, you know, I, I think that he had a very difficult mandate and this was a very difficult job and an unprecedented situation. So he he seems very reluctant to want to reiterate uh, on the stand the frustrations that he was definitely putting to pen and to paper uh, during the convoy. Um, You know, ultimately, will that, you know, legitimize the use of the Emergencies Act? I I couldn't tell you. Probably not. Uh, You know, a lot of his frustration is very much geared towards the Ottawa Police Service and Peter Slowly. But, you know, the documents are such an important part of this whole inquiry, and the documents definitely show he was a frustrated minister. Well, as we say, that is day one of what is uh, the last week of testimony. Many more ministers, the prime minister also scheduled. So you and I, all three of us, will be speaking once again before this is through, without a doubt. But for now, uh, Joanna Smith, Chris Nardi, always appreciate the time. Thank you for this. Have a good night, Michael. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You too. Now, a reminder to everyone at home, we will have continuing coverage of the Public Order Emergency Commission right here on CPAC for you. You can also tune into our live stream of each day's testimony on our website, cpac.ca. And it is also on our website where you will find the full proceedings where we will archive them for you and make them available whenever you want it. Well, with the busy holiday season fast approaching, the federal transport minister, he is hoping to avoid the massive lines and the kind of chaos that we saw at airports right across the country this past summer. Omar Al-Gabra announcing a summit for Thursday with stakeholders to figure out what can be done and to discuss that matter. Well, we're joined right now by the federal transport minister himself. So, Minister, thank you for finding the time today. It's great to be with you, Michael. Thank you for having me. So, as I said, a summit, it will take place later this week. Uh, Talk to us what you're hoping to achieve and really what kind of assurances you're looking for to, again, avoid the chaos that we saw this uh, past summer. Uh, First of all, Michael, the last couple of years have been really tough on the airline sector. We went from complete shutdown because of COVID and public health measures to uh, a resurgence last summer, and we saw many you know many weaknesses in the system that got exacerbated because of these uh, turbulent for lack of uh, another word for uh, turbulent times um, so at the time um, our government and the airline sector worked closely on operational issues to address these congestions as quickly as possible but it was really important for us to take a moment and learn from those lessons that 
uh, we learned during that congestion period. So the summit is going to bring key players in the industry from airlines, airports, unions and others to uh, pose a number of questions about operational challenges, about systemic issues, about new technology. Um, and the idea is how can we address and be ready for the Christmas rush, as you alluded to, but also how can we prepare the system for the long term? And are you confident that we can avoid the long lines and the frustration? Uh, Michael, we're working very diligently with the airline sector. I've been meeting with CEOs and airports and telling them it would be unacceptable for us to see what we saw last summer during this Christmas season. Our government is, is working with industry as we speak to avoid it, and we're doing everything we can. But there are, as I said, there are some structural and systemic issues, some of which may not be implemented by Christmas, but there are operational things that are being done as we speak. Mm -hmm. uh, and quickly, just an example of, of, of something concretely that, that you can actually point to. Well, uh, you know, the operational issues, we dealt with long lines uh, for security clearance uh, for new employees. Uh, we worked with airlines and airports and CATSA and NAV Canada to improve the efficiency and the importance of information that is being shared. And for me, this is an important uh, uh, example, Michael. There's a need to enhance the type of information that the various industry players share with each other. It's important to give accurate forecasts to other industry players so everyone can plan properly and efficiently. I would say this is one of my most uh, immediate targets. Now, interestingly, as we're having this conversation today, we heard that there are dozens of countries and airlines right now essentially pushing for the UN International Civil uh, Aviation Organization to make single pilot operations the norm for commercial flights. Now, ostensibly, this would address uh, labor and cost uh, issues in the industry. Would you be comfortable flying or allowing planes to fly to Europe with only one pilot on board? Um, Michael, ICAO, the International Civil Aviation Organization uh, General Assembly, was hosted in Montreal only a couple of months ago. I was there. I met with many international uh, transportation ministers from around the world. We talked about everything, including the congestion phenomena that were experienced at the other airports around the world. Um, I think it's really important that we, we coordinate with other countries. However, let me just say, we will never compromise on safety. Um, so I'm looking forward to seeing what proposals um, uh, the agency or the organization presents. But I could tell you, I am not comfortable compromising on safety. And if there's any proposal that poses any risk to or potential to our security, we will not accept. Now, let's also talk about supply issues then, uh, because when you talk about the, the staffing shortages, the cost issues, Canada has been dealing with supply shortages. As you know, that's creating higher prices for Canadians. And you've introduced a bill to help deal with backlogs in the supply chain. Talk to us about the measures you're hoping to address. Um, Michael, as, I, uh, as you stated, the world, again, because of COVID, the war in Ukraine and other factors have been experiencing inflation. In fact, Canada, it's good that we can point to the fact that Canada has lower inflation than most countries around the world, than the US, than the UK, than the EU, but Canadians are feeling uh, inflation at the grocery stores and anywhere where they're shopping and buying essential goods. 
we are providing immediate relief to Canadians who need it, but at the same time, we're addressing root causes of these issues, including supply chains. We're addressing this on a variety of levels, but one of them was the bill that I tabled last Thursday in the House of Commons to improve the efficiencies of our ports and our rail network. This will help and ensure that Ports are modernized in the new century, that they are accountable, uh, that they have a, 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 a secure source of investment to grow, but also that they are accountable for climate change targets and they are sustainable. Well, Minister, we're watching all this so very closely. Thank you very much for the time today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Michael. And that's Minister Algabra. The federal Greens are once again turning to Elizabeth May to lead them, but this time with a deputy leader in Jonathan Pedneau, who many in the party hope will be a co-leader in up. the coming months. So two, not just one leader for the federal Green Party. Those of you who are scratching your heads at home and saying, co-leader, what's that mean? It means a different model for leadership that emphasizes that Greens do things differently, we don't have a top-down leader, a boss, who tells people what to say or where to go or how to vote. Jamais. We have a distributed model of leadership, and Jonathan and I believe that our values are better reflected in co-leadership. We're the party for the families that want to spend more time with their loved ones. We're the party for those who think that billionaires should not exist. We're the party for those who believe strongly that this planet needs protecting. Well, Elizabeth May and Jonathan Pedno join us now. Uh, congratulations to the two of you and thank you for being here. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Uh, Mr. Pedno, I'm going to ask you to start us off here because you're not quite yet a co-leader, but that is the hope. Just how exactly would you see a co-leadership working down the road? Well, exactly in the same way that Elizabeth and I have been campaigning. We are uh, we are a team. We are committed to making sure that the party works well, not only for members, but also for Canadians, and that we uh, project a strong voice, a strong voice and the strong policies of our members. Elizabeth and I are very complementary. Uh, we have two different backgrounds. Uh, I've been spending 14 years working as a, a journalist and a human rights investigator. Uh, Elizabeth has been in Parliament for so many years. I have a lot to learn from her. I have some uh, experience that I want to share with her as well and with uh, our amazing colleague uh, Mike Morris who is doing fantastic work in the house and we will uh, we are here to serve and we look forward to uh, meeting Greens and Canadians throughout the country uh, in the run-up to the next federal election. Okay so complimentary but Ms. May I do wonder about your own plans of how you are going to move forward because of course you did step down uh, before only to come back to helm the ship once again will you be playing more of a uh, background role if a co-leadership is actually approved well right now we are really operating as a team as co-leaders even though the in the titles have yet to change jonathan is a uh, deputy leader of the green party of canada we have two deputies uh, and we are going to work together asking the membership it's always up to the membership in this party, whether they approve the idea of formally changing the way the Green Party functions from a single leader to co-leaders. And it's not that common for Canadians to hear about co-leadership, but it's very common for Greens. The co-leaders of the German Greens are now cabinet members in the German government, same in New Zealand, cabinet ministers there in Scotland, 
and also you know it, around the world greens serving in government as co-leaders is very uh, familiar territory for us so what i'm going to be doing is not a background role but we are job sharing and i'm the one of the two of us who's in parliament so i have to be very much uh in the foreground of parliamentary debate i have to make a real difference to get the current government the liberal ndp uh confidence supply agreement gives the liberals a free ride till 2025 which is actually a dangerous year it's it's already at the point where if we don't get a significant change in the degree of ambition of this government we will see the window close on uh, the most livable uh, outcomes for climate action and we will slide to an increasingly dangerous as as the UN secretary general says we're on a highway to climate hell foot on the accelerator so i say i guess in in job description my job is to get this government to get its foot off the accelerator and start changing course so that we can have a livable world and my dear colleague and wonderful partner Jonathan Pedno it's going to be relatively more focused on internal party rebuilding fortifying our our operations and making sure we're on a solid financial footing well before the next election. Okay, let me jump in there because, you know, Ms. May, you, you do reference the fact that you, between the two of you, is the only one with a seat in Parliament right now. There is a by-election in Mississauga, Ontario next month. Mr. Pedno, you're not running in that by-election. So when will you seek a seat in the House of Commons? Uh, what will you be doing until then? I'll be seeking a seat in the next, uh, in the next election in Quebec. Uh, so right now my priority really is to make sure that we have a solid and engaged membership that we have an ability to carry our message and our policies uh, to the widest amount of Canadians from different walks and paths of life. Uh, and and I'll really be focused on that and making sure that we have a team that's ready mm -hmm. to uh, run in the next election. That really is a priority. Okay, well, you know, that said, uh, Canadians are well aware that the Greens have been beset by some internal divisions. In fact, uh, your predecessor, Anime Paul, she blamed racism and misogyny for the lack of support, if not backstabbing, that she felt she suffered from the party. Uh, Mr. Pedno, are you at all worried about facing potential bigotry from within? Politics is, uh, is difficult. Uh, there's a lot of racism throughout Canadian society. I'm fully prepared to face it where uh, I encounter it, whether it's inside the party or outside. I'm especially very much committed to making sure that this party is a safe environment for all the amazing volunteers, all the amazing staff that we have. Uh, and uh, we will be leading, uh, by example, both Elizabeth and I. Uh, but we're ready to uh, uh, meet the challenge and uh, uh, quite honestly, I've been uh, traveling throughout the country throughout this race. I've met an incredible amount of wonderful Green members and have not had uh, the same experiences that uh, uh, Mrs. Paul referred to. Uh, I'm very sorry for the experience that she went through. Uh, I think people uh, learn, people change. Uh, the party has gone through a lot of uh, internal uh, work. There's been our former uh, leader has done an amazing job at uh, meeting with members and making sure that uh, we're all on the same page, and so we're uh, we're starting off with a fresh page, a fresh page, and we're uh, excited for the, the coming years uh, as we rebuild this party and are uh, certain to present a confident and happy face to the Canadian. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can I May. just clarify, yeah, very, I clarify very that, Michael, just a little bit? Uh, my predecessor is Dr. Amita Kuttner, 
who is the first translator of any federal political party. And they've done an amazing job. And as Jonathan just said, have been touring the country. We are more unified, more positive, and we've built a real team, even in the leadership race. The other contenders for leadership are terrific. And we want to keep working together to get all of us elected to parliament. Mrs. May, thank you for that. Really appreciate the time today. Mr. Pedno, again, thank you to you as well. And congratulations to the both of you uh, for winning your leadership race. Thank you. Thank you. And that is our program for this Monday evening. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. We'll see you again tomorrow.